overlooked from our analysis of the importance of worldview that we went through over the past hour is w- what emerged from our caller Jeff and this this idea this distinction that must be made between on the one hand comparing the left to the right and on the other hand comparing republicans to democrats one of the things that I think is important to understand absolutely key actually to understand is that the political parties or any given political party whether it's a major one or a minor one it's just an organization. It's just a shell. It, it can be any, like 10 years from now, the Democrats could be the quote unquote conservative party, right? Like the polarization could flip. It's completely within the realm of possibility, probably not probability, but certainly possibility. So there's nothing inherent about the title Republican or the title Democrat that really tells you anything at all. You have to go to worldview. You have to go to the, the merits of what's being prescribed. And that is where we defer to our labels of left and right. And in my mind, because, you know, unfortunately, there are varying definitions of what constitutes left and what constitutes right. For me, the spectrum is properly defined with on the furthest left end of the spectrum, total and complete tyranny. And that includes things like fascism, which a lot of people typically throw over on the right side of the spectrum, which is completely inexplicable to me. I don't understand why how you can have a meaningful political spectrum where fascism is on one end and communism is on the other, since they're in essence, the exact same thing, which is just unlimited control of people's lives through the initiation of force in government. To my mind, they all belong properly on the left side of the political spectrum. And on the furthest right, you don't have anarchy. Anarchy isn't even on the spectrum. Anarchy doesn't, doesn't deserve to be anywhere on the spectrum because it's not a practical thing that can actually exist. You know, if you have a vacuum of political power into that races some form of tyranny and you're back around to the left again. So if you're going to put it anywhere on the spectrum, you might as well put that on the left as well. The furthest right side of the spectrum properly drawn in my view is the actual manifest condition of liberty. And so when Jeff talks about extremists in both parties, I find that to be a very interesting term because extreme compared to what, what's the reference point? When you talk about extremists and extremism, by what reference point are you measuring extremity? Because look, I'll tell you right now, I'm willing to accept the moniker, the the claim of being an extremist relative to the status quo, relative to what is generally accepted as the political establishment. I advocate for extreme change in public policy. But what? how can you make a value judgment about that until you know what the prescription is? What I stand for, what I want is that furthest end of the right side of the political spectrum, which is the manifest condition of liberty, a condition in which you are free in full ownership of your own life to pursue your own values as you define them to live free from the initiation of force by other people. Now, does that sound uh, scary to you? Does that sound threatening, the notion that you might get to live in a condition of liberty? And yet, it is extreme compared to the current political center. It is extreme compared to a lot of people who identify as Republicans, a lot of people who identify as conservatives. 
extremism onto itself is not really a description of value at all. And so, you know, to me, it's much more important to look at the, the defining characteristics of where, where a person's worldview is at, what it is that they're advocating for or failing to advocate for, and make your value judgments from there. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. You can catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. And on your iHeartRadio app, we are here 9 to 11 weeknights, 651-989-5855, the number to join us this evening. One of the, the issues that indicates that the, the Republican Party is just as capable of adopting the worldview of the left as Democrats are is our on, ongoing drama surrounding the efforts to supposedly repeal and replace Obamacare. From the Star Tribune. Senate Republicans launched their plan for shriveling Barack Obama's health care law Thursday, edging a step closer to their dream of repeal with a bill that would slice and reshape Medicaid for the poor, relax rules on insurers, and end tax increases on high earners that have helped finance expanded coverage for millions. Four conservative GOP senators quickly announced initial opposition to the measure, and others were evasive, raising the specter of a jarring rejection by the Republican-controlled body. But Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, indicated he was open to discussion and seemed determined to muscle the measure through its, his chamber next week. Release of the 142-page proposal ended a long wait for one of the most closely guarded bills in years. McConnell stitched it together behind closed doors, potentially moving President Donald Trump and the GOP toward achieving perhaps their fondest goal, repealing former President Obama's 2010 statute, his proudest domestic legacy. Now, here's my question. I got a question for them, and I got a question for you. My question for them is, do you actually want to repeal Obama's legislation? Like, what it does? The effect of it? Or do you just want to symbolically repeal his legacy? And I think the answer to that question is pretty obvious in terms of the, when you look at the substance of what these proposed repeal and replace bills do. It's pretty clear that Republicans aren't too keen on the idea of actually repealing the legislation. Because, look, if they were, they could just do that, right? It's not, it's not difficult. It's not hard conceptually or practically to simply author a bill that repeals Obamacare. You could do that tomorrow. No problem. They just don't want to. They don't want to. And so, you know, to my mind, the, the answer to that first question directed at the Senate Republicans is pretty obvious. My second question is directed towards you. Are you cool with this? Is this satisfying to you? Is this what you voted for in November? Is this what you've been voting for since 2010, the big Tea Party wave that was a response to, in, in large part, a rejection of Obamacare and Barack Obama's agenda? Is this what you're driving towards? You're going to get to a point where, you know, as Ben Shapiro describes it, this is essentially just an effort to be able to claim they did something about Obamacare while also paving the way towards a tax cut. Yay. And look, I'm all for tax cuts, right? Like, fundamentally, you know, we've heard us say multiple times on this program, taxation is theft. I'm all for less taxes. But there are some things, and this may seem sacrilegious on conservative talk radio, there are some things that are more important than tax cuts. Just a little bit, right? 
if if you're going if you're going to well let's keep it simple how about spending let's just focus there for a minute shall we how about spending the amount of money that the government spends because here's the thing if you if you issue a tax cut which this legislation paves the way for and actually includes some tax cuts but you don't actually do anything about the amount of spending that government is doing what do you think that translates to couple of D words, deficits, debt, which we already have plenty of, by the way. What, $20 trillion it ballooned to under Barack Obama? Should, shouldn't we be thinking about doing something about that? Because here's the thing, and, and this, is what, this is what I don't understand why it's so difficult for Republicans to— No, I, I do understand it, because on its face, you don't want to be the guy who has to go up there and defend, quote-unquote, taking away— somebody's health care or whatever the entitlement is fill in the blank entitlement fill in the blank government service but the way to get around that is to accurately this is not a rhetorical trick i'm advocating it's accurate to accurately describe it not as taking something away but restoring something which ought to be restoring liberty restoring freedom restoring the market restoring justice Restoring hope for the future, restoring the possibility that our children and our grandchildren might be able to pursue their own happiness without having to spend a vast majority of their production paying off the debts that we racked up in order to enjoy a higher quality of life on their backs. Who does that? What kind of a person would ever charge up a card? full of expenses, which provide them with a higher quality of life, and then send the bill to their kids, post-dated for 30 years in the future. Hey, you know, when, when you have kids of your own and you're trying to establish yourself, you're trying to buy your first home, you're trying to set up your retirement fund, that's when my bill's going to arrive for all the stuff that I got to enjoy without paying for it. Thanks, kids. Nobody would do that. Maybe two people in the entire country would conscientiously make that decision. And yet, as a society, as a government, that is precisely what we are doing to our kids with the national debt, with deficits, with continued spending. And by just offering tax cuts without addressing the spending issue, Republicans are making it worse. Worse. It's unbelievable. Let's go to the phone, 651-989-5855. Tevye in St. Paul, welcome to the program. I would my 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 opinion is that we should repeal the total thing of Obamacare for two reasons. One, it violates laws of insurance. You cannot, you know. You you, are, you mean in terms of what insurance actually is? You to insurance you have a you have two fundamental rules. One, you cannot profit. You can be made whole for a loss, but you cannot profit. And the second rule, fundamental rule, is you may not contribute to your loss. So obesity and you know, over non-exercising and all that is contributing to your loss, and there's no reason why the next generation should pay for people who abuse their body and smoking and all that other stuff. Yeah. The, the other thing is, is you can't give you know, you, you you cannot pass on debt to people endlessly without it being paid. The debt must be paid, as right. Plato said you know, a long time ago. I, actually, yeah. The point is. You have to pay the bills, and mm-hmm. you can't do that if you're saddling the future 
you're rewarding envy, you're rewarding sloth, you have to pay the bills. And we're not doing that. We haven't been doing that since. And the last thing is, this is the 100th anniversary of JFK's birthday. And mm-hmm. the first thing I remember of JFK was his idea of restoring the 50-mile hikes and encouraging people to be active in gym and new physical education in the, six, in the 50, late 50s and 60s. Now we don't even have kids taking showers anymore. They don't make us sweat. So where are we going to have the next generation to develop these things and actually work? Yeah. Yeah, you raise a good point. I appreciate your call, Tevia, as always. This is just the thing, is we, what, we, what we've divorced ourselves from, and this you know, goes back to kind of the, the worldview issue, is basic recognition of fundamental facts of reality. The requirements of life, as Ayn Rand used to say it, and what condition is necessary, what is the prerequisite to be able to pursue those requirements and thus survive and thrive. You know, this would not be a difficult sell if we had a culture that recognized and appreciated those simple, basic, fundamental, essential concepts. We can get there, but it's going to take the decision, the initial decision that you can make right now, today, tonight, to make, to make it a priority to spread the concepts. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, Twin Some time ago, we had on the program our friend Mike Franklin, uh, who <laughs> has more credentials than I'm willing to recite, and I, I don't really care about his credentials anyway. The important thing is, He's a Republican guy, conservative guy. You used to hear him on uh, the the podcast, Wrong About Everything, and uh, he's a friend of the show, a friend of the station. He came on to share his his uh, story that is now uh, has a more prominent spotlight on it. We're about to read an article at the Pioneer Press regarding this of a gal he knows who is a manager of a building in St. Paul, where they've had a number of issues as a result of the Skyway being open until two a.m which is apparently the ordinance or at least the policy in St. Paul. And as a result of having the Skyway open, they've had to deal with a number of issues involving, shall we say, vagrancy that have uh, resulted in a lot of uh, janitorial efforts unnecessarily on her part. Yeah, to to put it extraordinarily lightly. We'll get into some of the details here momentarily. But she finally decided that she had enough of it. And decided that she was going to lock the building at 8 o'clock. Now, this, of course, is in defiance of municipal policy and has resulted in a standoff with the city. That standoff has been resolved, question mark, at least as far as the city is concerned, today. We're going to share the details with you here momentarily. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. From the Pioneer Press, a divided St. Paul City Council voted not to allow a lower town property group to continue to close a Skyway connection six hours early, but building manager Janae Brooks is pledging civil disobedience. On Wednesday, the council voted four to three to require Brooks to keep Skyway access at the railroader printing building on Mears Park open to at least 2 a.m. in step with most of the rest of the downtown Skyway system. She plans to do no such thing. 
I'm going to continue to close at 8 p.m., said Brooks, who manages the 235 East 6th Street property that houses the Barrio Tequila Bar and the Bulltog Lower Town after the hearing. Sue me. Take me to Skyway Jail. I'll take the fine. I like this gal. I like this gal a lot. Me too. She's uh, quickly becoming one of my favorite people, even though I've never met her. Can we have her on the show? I'm looking into it. All right. Hopefully we will be able to get her. I, you know, not everybody's a radio person. Not everybody's True. eager to do that, but hopefully we can get her on the program. I mean, she doesn't sound like she's shy, so I'd, I'd like to think that she'll be willing to come on the program. Brooks said she no longer wears white clothes to work because she's become accustomed to cleaning up after vagrants who camp out in the Skyway and damage glass, doors, locks, and carpeting. Several months ago, she came across a startled man holding a knife defensively. I wonder why, how she could possibly be concerned, right? There's obviously no problem here. And, of course, the mandate that the, that the Skyway be open until 2 is in the public goods, in the public it, interest. It's insane that the St. Paul Skyway is open till 2 a.m. Minneapolis Skyways aren't even open that late. I think they might be open till midnight on, like, the weekends, but usually they close, like, between 10 and midnight. And St. Paul is... 10 times more boring than Minneapolis. <laughs> like, there's no nightlife scene to, wor- to worry about in Minneapolis, like, it, compared to Minneapolis, anyways. Yeah. People go there for wild games and, like, XL Energy concerts, but other than that, it doesn't have near the same downtown scene as Minneapolis. And to have it open till 2 a.m. is just inviting right. people. And I've Clearly. Yeah. Well, you look at people, like, you go downtown St. Paul compared to downtown Minneapolis, I mean... There's ruffians in both places, but I would say it's worse in St. Paul. Yeah, it's far worse in St. Paul. I like, I'm used to it here. Maybe I mean maybe that's just because I spend more time in Minneapolis. But like, I'm used to avoiding the people in Minneapolis. Like it's not that big of a deal. But like St. Paul, like they're blocking the sidewalk. Like mm-hmm. they're taking up space. They're they're clearly you know begging there to just be there, right. hanging out in boulevards and parks. Like it's not it's not a good situation. No, and uh, apparently that's not a view that is shared by at least a voting majority of the city council. Returning to the Pioneer Press, council member Rebecca Knockler, who represents downtown, led efforts to deny Brooks' request. She noted that the city's Department of Safety and Inspections, a Skyway advisory group, and any number of residential tenants have all asked building owners for uniform hours, standards, and security. The value of having this Skyway system open and accessible and coordinated is great. Knocker said, it's part of the Skyway that is closest to Mears Park and CHS Field and all of that vibrancy. See, she describes what you described as boring. <laughs> she describes as vibrancy. She acknowledged that crime and vagrancy in the Skyway system continue to be concerns, but she noted that the Capital City Police, or, or I'm sorry, the Capital City Plaza parking ramp had invested heavily in expanded security precautions after a homeless woman was raped and beaten there in April. Clearly, it's working. Now, the the Star Tribune's reporting on this also highlighted this notion that was forwarded by the council that it is the responsibility of the building owners, the building management, to provide private security. Now, here's my problem with this. What you have in play here are two totally conflicting premises. On the one hand, they're making the argument that this gal cannot protect her property, cannot protect the building for which she is responsible by closing off public access to it at an hour of her choosing. Because the premise is, the basis is, this is a public space. The sky was a public space, and it, it is, it is uh, 
needs to be accessible to the public during the hours set by public policy. At the same time, they're placing responsibility for the security of that area on the very private concern that they are strong-arming into keeping their building open. That is utter and complete nonsense. If you're going to mandate that a person has to keep their building open to, until 2 o'clock in the morning, then it is 100% your responsibility to ensure that any violations of that property's rights are dealt with promptly and effectively. It is the city of St. Paul's responsibility to be dealing with these vagrants and to, be, and to indemnify any damage done as a result of their negligence in failing to enforce the law. This is absolutely absurd. I do hope that we can get her on the program. I, I may be more upset about it than she is, which, you know, is, <laughs> tends to be my want from time to time. When we come back, we'll get into an update on where the legislature is and their ongoing standoff with Governor Mark Dayton. We'll also uh, get into some Trump news. That's always fun. And Bill Cosby, you're not going to believe this headline regarding Bill Cosby. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I can't get over how ridiculous that is that the city of St. Paul is telling building owners, building managers, that they must keep their skyway open until 2 a.m. And at the same time telling them, oh, yeah, by the way, you're responsible for the security. You're responsible for making sure that nothing bad happens inside your building. You know, when this gal, Janae Brooks, locks the door at 8 p.m., that strikes me as an amazing execution of security like that that's what she's doing she's providing for security by locking her freaking door pretty basic but no that's not what they have in mind it's it's really uh unbelievable you know one of the things the other aspects of this story that i think is noteworthy is that you know it describes her action her refusal because she's basically saying i'm not going to do it she's saying i'm going to keep locking the door and uh it's described as an act of civil disobedience now that's something that we often hear evoked by the left, by folks like Black Lives Matter and what have you, in terms of their blocking freeways. But here's the crucial distinction. Here's what actually makes it civil disobedience as opposed to what Black Lives Matter does. I'm going to continue to close at 8 p.m., said Brooks, who manages the 235 East 6th Street property that houses the Barrio Tequila Bar and the Bulldog Lower Town. This is reading from the Pirate Press. Sue me. Take me to Skyway Jail. I'll take the fine. That's what she said. That's what she told him. In other words, she's willing to accept the legal consequences for her disobedience. She doesn't expect that she's going to be able to defy the city ordinance, defy the city's policy decisions without consequence. That's, the, that's what makes actual civil disobedience. She's willing to break the law and take the consequences in order to make a point, a principled point. That's worthy of respect. What Black Lives Matter does, complaining about being arrested for breaking the law, is not. This is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can do so through streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. Brad Omlin taking your calls and producing the program. From the Star Tribune, Governor Mark Dayton's veto of the budgets of the Minnesota House and Senate will force them to shut down operations and furlough hundreds of workers by the end of August. 
according to new court documents filed Thursday in the legislature's lawsuit against the governor. The clash between the executive and legislative branches of state government heads to court Monday when attorneys representing the legislature will argue that Dayton's action was unconstitutional and could put the state's finances at risk. Dayton's legal team, meanwhile, will contend that the Republican-majority legislature trapped the DFL governor into signing budget bills he believed would harm the state, leaving him with little recourse other than his veto power. Well, then why didn't he just veto the bills? Yeah, that's unbelievable. I mean, this is the weak—and I understand, you know, they're his lawyers. they got to come up with some argument. But this is the weakest possible argument you could offer, that his only option was to defund the legislature. He didn't have anything else available to him. Ridiculous. Continuing, in the in the legal briefs, the legislature asks Ramsey County District Judge John Guthman to grant a temporary injunction that would force the state to continue funding the House and Senate after their budgets run out June 30th. If that doesn't happen, the legislature says the Senate, which spends about $2.5 million per month, good Lord, can operate on reserves, reserve funds until July 27. After that, all 67 elected senators and 202 of its 205 full-time staff members would be furloughed without pay. What do the other three do? Who are the three staff members who get to stay on? Like, what's their essential role? Uh, I hope janitorial. That would be hilarious. The House, with a $22.7 million monthly budget, can keep all the lights until August 31st when it would furlough its 134 elected lawmakers and 213 of its 232 staff members. The legislature argues that those cuts, along with the Senate's inability to make monthly lease payments on the new Senate office building, amount to the governor effectively shutting down a separate branch of government and potentially putting the state's credit ratings and borrowing power at risk. The legislature's attorneys also raised the prospect that the Senate could end up evicted from its new building without the ability to make payments. That would also be hilarious. The governor's vetoes will wreak havoc and widespread financial harm upon the legislature and the state as a whole, reads one of the legislature's briefs. Dayton's attorneys contend that the governor is well within his constitutional rights to issue the line-item veto. They say it was the result of a chain reaction of events that began with the legislature sticking a poison pill into the budget bills, funding state government departments and operations. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, like I say, I, I will be... Absolutely livid, like torches and pitchforks livid if the court doesn't make the right decision on this because it's open and shut. And, and look, if they do, then what the, the proper response from all of the Republican candidates for governor is to go is to go around promising that if, in fact, the Democrats take control of the legislature by some means, the, their first act as governor will be to defund the legislature until such time as Republicans get it, get a majority again. I mean, that's the implication of this, right? Yeah. Like, how can you how can you argue against that as your policy if the court upholds this? If it's if it's somehow okay and proper for the governor to decide that we're not going to have a legislature, then that is always true. You know, this goes to uh, Ayn Rand's test for determining whether or not an action or a prescribed principle is actually legitimate if you apply it consistently to people in similar people and institutions in similar circumstances would it work all the time and the answer here is obviously no you can't just have a governor who at at whim because he doesn't like what the other branch of government is doing decide we're not going to have that other branch 
It's pretty absurd. Maybe the Supreme Court should decide that we don't have a governor. <laughs> uh, that that would be interesting. This, this, I mean, look, it is comical, and that's the best we can do at this point is just laugh. Uh, but I, it's also it also does have real consequences in terms of the yeah. credit rating of the state. The I, I I do think the idea of the legislature being evicted from the Senate office building that would be hilarious. And look. And this is probably one of the many reasons why I'm not a legislator. If I was a legislator and that happened, the, the, the Senate was evicted from its new office building, I would play it up big time. I would go down and put, set up a tent on the sidewalk and, like, dress down all vagrant style and just hang out, like, with a sign, out-of-work senator. Yeah, that would be hilarious. All right. So, Star Tribune. President Donald Trump declared Thursday he never made— and doesn't have recordings of his private conversations with ousted former FBI Director James Comey, ending a month-long guessing game that he started with a cryptic tweet and that ensnared his administration in yet more controversy. Now, can we just, can we just, does this really surprise anybody? Are you surprised by this, Brad? At this point, no. Yeah, I mean, haven't we learned the lesson by now that you you should not take things that Donald Trump says seriously. And I know that that's not a good place for us to be having a sitting president of the United States who says things that are just completely disconnected from any sort of reality whatsoever. But regardless of, of his merits and the, the, the merits of that tendency on his part, this is starting to become a commentary on the rest of us. This is starting to become a commentary on the media and the Democrats and, 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 the, and folks who are locked in on trying to hold Trump to the, the letter of any given thing that he says. It, it's evocative of when he made his claim about Obama uh, wiretapping Trump Tower, which everybody took, well, not everybody, but the vast majority of people took so literally and so seriously and pursued investigations along the lines of what do you mean you're accusing obama of something that was illegal and, and as the story unfolded as the facts came to light it was very clear that what trump was actually referencing was the notion that his team was under various forms of surveillance incidental surveillance attached to the the surveillance of foreign entities which is not the wiretapping of trump tower but nonetheless in in principle in form he was you you know what he meant and that's what you, what you have to do with trump you can't just look at what he says cuz the the literal content of what he says is, is not going to point you in the direction of what he actually means you have to look for kind of like the the a interpretation of what he actually means it's kind of like not to be uh, too disrespectful but it's kind of like me trying to understand my kids sometimes you know you can sometimes they say things that just don't make sense and you have to pause and you have to give it some thought and ask yourself the question, what's the most likely thing that he's trying to tell me right now? <laughs> like, given what I know of him, of his behavior, of his preferences, what, what he likes to do, what he tends to do on a day-to-day -day basis, what's most likely the intent behind these words? Because you can't just look at their substance and determine it. It's, it's like when you're dealing with somebody and they don't know what they want. But they don't. But they know what they don't want, right? So you just kind of have to keep throwing stuff out there until they say no. Yeah. So and then you know, okay, that's what they don't want, and build their preferences from there. Yeah. 
651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. That's Brad Omland. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. I appreciate the fact that they're advertising on the station, but whenever I hear that spot with Josh Dumail, where he's talking about he's cautioning us against traveling abroad and purchasing products that were made by illegally poached animals, the question that comes to mind is what makes him think that you or I are doing that? Like, I I can't remember the last time. I mean, I would have to strain to remember the last time I traveled abroad. And when I did, I certainly know that I was neither tempted to nor actually followed through on uh, in a hypothetical temptation to purchase a poached animal product. But apparently that's a thing. I... Usually when you hear those like PSAs, like the ad council is just notorious for this. Somebody rich and famous that they liked screwed up. So now that so now a rich organization has to fund a PSA organization saying that we don't support that. I see. That's usually what happens. So Mr. Burns got caught putting something up on his wall, and now we all have to pay for it. Yep. I hear you. All right. So let's. this is something that uh, popped up on my social media feed that I find kind of interesting. This comes to us from CARE 11. By the way, this is Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Home Depot and Menards face lawsuits over lumber size descriptions. This is a object lesson or a, a case uh, indicating exactly why we need major tort reform. Two home improvement stores are accused of deceiving the buyers of 4 by 4 boards, the big brothers to the ubiquitous 2 by 4 The alleged description, Menards and Home Depot market and sell their hefty lumber as 4 by 4 is without specifying that the boards are actually 3.5 inches, by three and a half inches. Wouldn't be the first time somebody lied about the size of their wood. <sighs> oh, there. Brad Omlin, ladies and gentlemen. The lawsuits against the retailers would be class actions. Imagine that, a class action lawsuit. This is this is another group of people who are going to get a check in the mail for $47 like you did, Brad. Was that right? Worth it? Yeah. Yep. You know, after all, and the lawyers walk away with millions of dollars and everybody gets a check for like 10 bucks and uh, justice has supposedly been done. Attorneys from the same Chicago law firm represent the plaintiffs in both cases. Each suit seeks more than $5 million. Defendant has received significant profits from its false marketing and sale of its dimensional lumber products. The action against Menards contends. Defendant's representatives as to the dim- or representations as to the dimensions of these products were false and misleading, the suit alleges against Home Depot. The retailers say the allegations are bogus. It is common knowledge and longstanding industry practice, they say, that names such as 2x4 and 4x4 do not describe the width and thickness of those pieces of lumber. Rather, the retailers say, those are nominal designations accepted in government-approved industry standards which also specify actual minimum dimensions. Anybody who's in the trades or construction Knows that, said Tim Stitch, a carpentry instructor at Milwaukee Area Technical College. This is the definition of a frivolous lawsuit. This kind of suit should be against the law. You should not be able to bring this kind of suit and thus waste people's time. And and, and this is nothing less than an attempt to fleece corporations with big profits for the exclusive benefit of the lawyers. 
the people who they claim to be representing are not going to benefit from this thing. You know, even if the case is settled and they end up getting their $10 check for, you know, let, let's, let's look at the hypothetical person. I know I'm, I'm spending much more time on this than I originally intended to. But let's imagine the hypothetical person who's actually been harmed by the false description, the allegedly false description of four by fours that are actually three and a half by three and a half. You know, he he went to all the trouble of purchasing his large order of alleged four by fours under the assumption that they were actually a solid four inches by four inches. And he, he went to all that trouble and then he finally went to use them. And to his horror, discovered that his plans for whatever structure it was that he was erecting uh, was not going to work. Or worse yet, he got it up and it fell apart, right? And he, he, he's, he's ended up down and out and out th- hundreds of thousands of dollars as a result of this deception on the part of Home Depot. How's that $10 check going to help? How's that $47 check he gets in the mail after this class action lawsuit is settled? How's that going to put things right? It feels good. <laughs> Oh, man. Oh, man. All right. Let's uh, get into there's some new Geronimo Yanez. You know, we got all the way to the last three minutes of the show, Brad, before talking about Geronimo Yanez. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> I know Nobody can call now. <laughs> I know you were getting kind of upset about uh, all the uh, all the, the contention regarding that issue. From Fox 9, in addition to all the evidence, there were nine pages of instructions for the jury to consider in the trial of Officer Geronimo Yanez. The instructions comprised of statuses, case law, and a jury instruction guide and show why building an effective case against police officers can be challenging for prosecutors. In the Yanez jury instructions, the definition of the second-degree manslaughter charge appears on on page 5. Quote, whoever by culpable negligence whereby he creates an unreasonable risk and conscientiously takes the chance of causing death to another person causes the death of another, etc. The next page offers a lengthy, roughly 80-word definition of culpable negligence, including that is negligence coupled with an an element of recklessness. The statute and definition are typical for a second-degree manslaughter case, but what follows them are instructions unique to when the defendant is a police officer. One paragraph explains that Minnesota law allows for deadly force by a police officer in the line of duty when necessary to protect the peace officer or another from apparent death. Judged from the perspective of an officer acting reasonably at the moment, he is on the scene uh, rather than the 2020 hindsight uh, of, of people after the fact. The reasonableness inquiry extends only to those facts known to the officer at the precise moment of the officer acted with force. The instruction to not apply 2020 hindsight is a requirement based on a U.S. Supreme Court case called Graham versus Connor. Courts must apply it to cases involving shootings by officers. There's a reason why this is the standard. Out of all the occupations in the United States, there are only two where you're required to put yourself in a violent situation many times with weapons, and that's the military and law enforcement. And so what this goes to, this is the thing is, you know, we talked earlier on the show about how vital worldview is. There are two different ways of looking at this, two different worldviews from which to perceive this information. The first is the idea that, aha, there's a double standard being applied to police, and and you can't easily convict an officer based upon these additional instructions that we should not offer to a jury because it's going to bias them against a potential conviction. 
The other way of looking at it, which I maintain to be the proper view, is that this is fundamentally correct. Fundamentally, police officers should be held to a different standard than the rest of us because objectively they have the duty to proceed into situations that are dangerous. They are duty bound to enforce the law, to confront violent situations and potential violent situations that could endanger their lives or the lives of others. So yes, they should be judged by a different standard for that reason alone. And that is all we're going to say about Geronimo Yanez tonight. Much to Brad's delight. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. We'll catch you tomorrow. Glenn Beck is next. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.